This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. AWS invests in technology and innovations that support ambitious sustainability goals. Learn about AWS sustainability work at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, greeting you today from Northern Tennessee. Joel McCower is taking some well-deserved vacation after our sold-out GreenBiz 23 event last week. On this week's episode, meet the Brooklyn, New York-based entrepreneur eliminating disposable food containers in corporate kitchens. We get meta about the metaverse and why TikTok could be the next frontier of marketing and media for climate tech. Are you ready for your close-up? This week on GreenBiz 350. It's February 24th, 2023. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. Joining me today as co-host from the Washington DC metro area, is the GreenBiz climate tech reporter, Leah Garden. Hello, Leah. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm thrilled to have you. It was fantastic to see you last week in freezing cold Scottsdale, Arizona at our GreenBiz 23 yeah. event. Crazy. They kept telling me, everyone from Arizona, the West Coast kept saying, you brought the cold and the rain. And I was like, well, I'm sorry about the cold, but you are in a drought, so I won't apologize for the rain. No, no. You're welcome. Definitely. Yeah, you're welcome. I actually, that was one of my favorite parts of last week was I got to visit some uh, watersheds up towards the Sedona area near Fort uh, Verde. Um, there's some restoration projects going on there. And I had a wonderful uh, opportunity to go visit in person and walk the ditches, so to speak, and see some farms. And I'm looking forward to writing that story in the very near future. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Leah, this was your first ever Green Biz 23. I mean, everyone's Green Biz 23 was the first time, but your first Green, green Biz conference. So I uh, just wondering what your impressions were. I was I kept hearing about how crowded it was going to be because of our incredible sellout, the fact that we were able to sell it out as much as we did. And then I got there and then it really hit me just how many people wanted to be there and just how many people were there. I mean, I've been to Verge, which is our biggest conference. So I wasn't really expecting as big of a vibe from GreenBiz 23, just because the numbers are smaller. But it was, I was overwhelmed by just how excited the sold out crowd was. Like, I felt like I was at Verge again, even though there were half the numbers. I don't know if that's making sense, but it just, like, everyone's, motivation to be there and work together because they wanted to solve this climate crisis just brought such an incredible energy. I was just blown away by it. So you were working our sidebar, which uh, is the, the hosting uh, hosting place for our live stream. And thank you for doing that along with John Schmea. Um, I'm just curious from the main stage, anything that really stood out to you in far, as far as the conversations, you know, anything struck you as surprising or, oh my gosh, that is so cool. I have to follow up on it. Well, first off, 
Dylan's Rent the Runway outfits. <laughs> Dylan Siegler, the, the conference director, is, is who Leah is referring to. Yes, Dylan, Dylan, you looked fabulous. I mean, she just really needed a shout out because I've never seen someone rock pink sparkles the way that she did and make me want to rock pink sparkles. I'm officially inspired. Um, but there was also a talk about birds and how climate change is impacting bird migrations and bird populations. And I've worked a little bit actually in the past with an ornithology lab, but I haven't really thought about it since then. And it just really stayed with me. And, and now I'm doing a lot of research on my own about how we can help to help the bird migration and, and, and stop impacting their way of life because of what we're doing. It was really inspiring. Yeah, that I, I absolutely 100% agree with you. That was, I think, one of my favorite presentations as well. I, I walked out of there, uh, BirdLife International. I don't know much about them, but I want to know a lot more, I think, because of just the whole, um, the birds are sort of like our our signaling system. You know, they, they can, where they go, what they're doing, they're so important in biodiversity. And um, I, I just loved her shout, the call to action was for corporations to get more involved in um, supporting their projects, they were look. They're looking at two what, migration corridors: one in Asia and one in in the north in the Americas as well. And I just, yeah, I, I found myself wanting to know a lot more about them as well. So, and what about you? For me, one of the highlights was the presentation on burnout by T Tamara Toles O'Laughlin. Um, fantastic speaker, by the way. Just unbelievable energy with a mask on, so you can do it with a mask yeah. on, right? So she she was just being protective of her community. But she's done a lot of great work in, um, you know, just understanding climate activism and but and in talking about the importance of, um, you know, keeping everyone's spirits up and and how we can't be, you know, we can't let people burn out because we need everyone in this moment. Which she just offered a, a, a lot of levity and humor. <laughs> One of her running sticks was a McRibs um, spiel. But I, I really appreciated hers. I also um, and I know this is very self-serving, but I really liked Crystal Barnes um, with Paramount, who is working on their Content for Change project, which basically uh, is applying their ESG strategy to all of their programming. It started with BET, um, and basically they're starting to review uh, their depictions of, of people uh, in their programs, whether they're accurate to society, what should be done to address them, and also not just the what's on screen, but what's behind the, the scenes. Um, the production crews, are they hiring enough, um, you know, actors of color? Are they hiring enough audio directors of color? You know, what's what's going on behind the scenes? So I really appreciated my conversation with her. I was really um, uh, struck by her, her vision and passion. So that would be mine. Yeah, you did a great job moderating that. That was really well done. I appreciate that. Thank you. So let's stop talking about me and you and... <laughs> Dylan's fabulous Rent the Runway. By the way, your Rent the Runway suit on the live stream, which you'll all have to, you'll have to tune into the live stream to see Leah's first day suit um, jacket. Awesome. Very fabulous velvet. Um, but meanwhile, let's stop blabbing on about Green Biz 23. I want to go to uh, two of the stories that we wrote recently. Um, we're going to do a truncated week in review, concentrating on social media and the metaverse. So 
Leah, I'm going to start with a story you wrote uh, just a few days ago, posing the question, could Walter Cronkite go viral on TikTok? And I was like, what? Like, I first saw this headline. I thought, well, first of all, Walter, love Walter. Um, But I mean, all fun aside, uh, you raised some really wonderful questions about the role of TikTok, which I think many uh, people over a certain age would think is kind of a frivolous thing, right? Oh, it's not for me. Uh, but you're, you make a really good case for why it could be a wonderful tool for climate tech startups. So I'm wondering what the inspiration was for this particular article and what, uh, you know, what, what really prompted this, this question in your mind? Well, if you don't work at GreenBiz, which I'm assuming 99.5% of our listeners don't, then you don't know that I have been single-mindedly trying to get a GreenBiz TikTok account up and running since I think maybe my second day on the job. I am an avid TikTok watcher. I actually consume a lot of news on TikTok. Shout out to Under the Desk News because that account really got me hooked. And it helped me learn a lot of things that I don't necessarily get to read because my job is so climate focused. It really opened up my eyes to the rest of the news that's happening outside of. Yeah. So you're saying you can't not things you're not reading. So this let lets you just kind of catch up quickly in short. Actually, TikTok, is there a limit? Remind me, is there a limit on the video length? The longest it can be is three minutes. But I did see yesterday that apparently it might go up to 10. I don't know. It keeps changing. But three minutes is the longest right now. So this is how you consume your news? For the most part, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm not alone. And so that's why I wanted to write this article and dig into it more. Because I do see a lot of communication on the app about climate solutions and climate activism and different types of climate tech that are coming up and becoming really re- relevant for the market. So I reached out to... Peak Action, which is a company that works specifically with climate tech B2B companies themselves and helps curate TikTok format videos to get what they're doing out to the public. And they do that because of an incredible stat that Kip Pastor, the CEO and founder of Peak Action, told me, which is that 91% of millennials and Gen Z conform, they don't conform, consume their news from social media. Oh, maybe they can. And to me, that's, (laughs) they might, (laughs) that's maybe the downside to TikTok, too much conforming. So I'm curious, so their news, meaning like all news, political news, local news? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've seen, I've seen people breaking what was happening in Ohio and East Palestine with the train derailment before mainstream media on on your television, you know, very traditional formatting news was talking about it. I've seen people talking about um, politics and and even like the most local of what's happening in school board meetings and, and what's happening on the ground is being filmed and then shared on TikTok to make it less isolated. And it actually helps portray a trend of what's happening around the country because the United States is so huge and filled up of so many different communities that you can start to to connect a community in Arizona with a community in Tennessee and see they're actually having very similar discussions at their school board meetings. And you only know that because you're able to scroll through TikTok and see the films, 10 second, 15 second clips of what's happening. And it's 
really interesting. Mm -hmm. Is there a lot of commentary? I mean, like, are these journal quote, quote, journalists, end quote? Some of them are journalists. Um, a lot of the time, they're just people who are really concerned about what they're seeing. And they want people outside of their community to know that it's happening and that um, there's a bigger issue that needs to be addressed. But since it's happening on such a local level, it's most likely happening everywhere on a local level. You just wouldn't know because it's not broadcasted. Right. Now, you did apply this to um, some climate tech companies. There was thing, I think it was Source, the, the company that does the um, capturing water from air. You showed one of their videos. Yes. Tell me about some of the other things you've seen, any um, any particular accounts, and if you don't, that's fine, any particular accounts that would be of interest to our climate tech community, other, other than ours, of course, yeah. where you where you talk about our, our great newsletter. Um, you know, are there any that are particularly compelling to you that you could mention or? Yeah, so there's, first off, with Source, I thought what was, what was really interesting about it is that Source is not the one who released the TikTok. Fifth Wall, which is a VC that invests in Source, released the TikTok. And I think that's the opportunity that people within the climate tech community can take. Because while it's not advertised on TikTok that Fifth Wall is an investor in Source, it's not high, it's not hidden information. It was a quick Google and I figured it out. So at its most cynical core, these are just promotional commercials. Yeah. Yeah. But what I think makes them more engaging is that they're not just like, here, buy this product and then go back to watching NCIS. Like, it's a call to action. And considering the doom and gloom narrative that climate and climate tech has been under for so long, a lot of people are motivated by it. So that's just first something I wanted to make clear. Yeah, if you don't have any um, particular ones to share, we can put some in the programming notes. That's cool. But um, yeah, you do? Yes. I do. So there's one, it's called Climate Tech VC. Um, and it's- The newsletter. It's, no, not a newsletter. It's not the same it's as the newsletter. It's not even related it's, to the, oh, it's, interesting. Mm -hmm. It's not, but it's, it's similar in what it puts out. So it's from the perspective of um, a student at Yale- who is currently getting her master's and wants to go into VCs specifically for climate tech. And so she gives her perspective on why she's doing that and how her path is going and which funds you should be paying attention to within the climate tech sector. And it's really informational. And she does it in such a way that like, it makes it really easy to understand, especially if you're not super familiar with that type of content. Perfect. So shout out. Yeah, shout out. I think it's, is that, is that Katrina? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've seen her account. Super account, Katrina. We love it. Um, so what would your call to action be then to the, to the marketers and, and uh, folks that are listening to this podcast that aren't necessarily on TikTok or, you know, haven't, haven't yet explored that medium? Start exploring. Understand that there is an entire marketplace available that if 91% of Gen Z and millennials are there getting their their news from, you should be there promoting why your solutions-oriented product should be taken seriously, is worth them putting their money into. Because millennials and Gen Z aren't a small part of the population. 
that's where the future of the economy lies. As one of the little lost Gen Xers that never gets caught talked about, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to explore it myself. So thank you for getting thank you for nudging me that direction as well. I think you've you've put me out of my comfort zone and uh, definitely have some more plans for myself on TikTok. So thank you for for getting me to that place. Thanks for calling it a nudge when I feel like I've been straight up pushing <laughs> with how much I have been trying to get TikTok <laughs> to be more of a thing at Greenpeace. There you go. So I want to hear more about what you wrote. So Climate Tech Rundown has two sections that go out every week on Mondays and on Wednesdays. You wrote this Wednesday about the metaverse for Climate Tech Rundown. So what made you want to write about that? How is that related to the climate tech sector? <laughs> So what made me want to relate, uh, write about it was me, me basically saying, what the hell do they mean by metaverse? Um, because I've actually been, I've been covering um, lots of emerging, I've been covering emerging technologies for a long time. Um, I won't mention how long, but a long time. And so part of, for me, what's really fascinating about some of these, these things that are getting really hyped right now, they're in the hype cycle of, you know, the sort of everyone's talking about it, everyone's talking about it. now we're talking about the dangers like the whole ai discussion right now to me is fascinating you know it's just what what these platforms may or may not do and what the dangers are but for me i was like what the hell do, you know like pardon me for swearing but what what do we mean by metaverse um and lo and behold you know i i kind of realized after i went down the little rabbit hole that it's it's some of these really practical things that we've been talking about for a long time, like augmented reality headsets, which allow you to see data about things you're looking at when you look through them, or virtual reality, straight on virtual reality, like um, a la the Oculus um, series, now Quest from, from Meta itself. And um, also the whole concept of digital twins. The latter concept in particular, I think, has a lot of very... Uh, exciting applications for those in um, sustainability and ESG. And I'll give you an example. Um, basically, if you take a product development um, cycle, when you're creating this thing as a designer, there are all sorts of decisions that have to be made. Like, no, you know, not just the shape, um, the shape of something and the color and all that stuff, but the the concept of how many screws could be holding this object together? What would um, you be able to do to the design to make it easier to take apart and and upcycle it or recycle it or um, upgrade it so it doesn't have to be taken out of circulation and, at all? What if you change this material? Like what if you change from this resin to a glass or steel or aluminum? What would happen? And by using, quote, a digital twin, you can take the information about an object and all of the things that are in it and put it in the digital world, but put it on a, you know, using software sensors and um, analytics. And you can basically change the parameters in the digital world to figure out how the, the real world might be affected. So it's, you know, kind of a, a simulation and um, computer aided design on steroids. Um, you can also look at things, you know, one of the, the applications I wrote about in, um, in the newsletter was had to do with training, right? So we know that we're never going to look at training again it's the same way post-pandemic than we did prior to the pandemic. We've got companies that are um, now confident and comfortable enough to 
think about sending their management teams to training virtually. And now with this metaverse, you can actually immerse them in an, an environment. You can have them put the goggles on or the headsets, um, and you can have them sort of interact with a factory, for example. So if you have a factory manager that wants to walk the factory floor, you could actually send them to the factory floor, have them be able to analyze and look at things, and think about the ways that they could change the process of making them more energy efficient, designing waste out, reducing water consumption, just sort of, um, you know, enabling them to think about things in a different way without actually having to send them across the world to a place to actually look, you know, walk in the factory itself. I know I'm geeking out a little bit, but. No, it's, it's making, I have so many questions now, but I know we only have so much time. So I'll try it. <laughs> so in your article, you talk about virtual storefronts and how that would, the trying before buying thoughts. How would that work? Can you create like an avatar with your precise body type to try on it to see how it would work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how would they do that? Because when I think of it, I think of like, and maybe this is because I don't interact with VR, like, like what we would see in an animated movie. How do you make it? How do they make the avatars realistic enough to have that type of an impact? Yeah. So that is one of the aerodynamic spaces. Like I was watching um, um, some, actually it was just, a little bit of a, a side a side note here. I was just judging some uh, journalism awards, uh, and one of the Q and As that I was viewing was done in the metaverse. So there were two, you know, there was an avatar, and they were sitting next to each other, um, and I they sort of represented the individuals, right? And I, I I found it to be compelling. I don't know that I don't know is a great example of some, something I would do in the metaverse because like. Why not just have them on video? Why not have the real people? I don't know. But it was just a great example of what you could do. So yeah, the avatars, this this avatar would be, um, you know, hopefully slightly more realistic than your Bitmoji or or something, but but approximating your your features, your coloring maybe, and to be able to put um, you know, these these things online. But also with with, with some of the places that Meta is going, it, it could even be you more more particularly um, shown in the future. So the, the whole idea of that particular application is that returns, we know this, and, and actually going back to Rent the Runway, how many sizes of each thing did you order, Leah? A couple, right? Two. Yeah. So mm-hmm. a lot of people do that when they buy clothing online, and then they send the clothing back for whatever one doesn't fit. So people there's the wasted transportation costs associated with that. There's what happens. Um, this we're talking particularly about peril right now. Where does that clothing go? Does it go back on the rack? Does it go back in circulation? Is it okay? Products like different kinds of products, things you've opened and sent back, or even worse, because they're not necessarily going to get put back into circulation. There could be they could be wasted. So there's a whole. Um, wor- series of ramifications involved with returns that that are very troubling and theoretically um if you could try before you buy you know the 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 idea is that um you might be able to eliminate some of those that waste associated with that um and maybe cut down on people i mean the whole idea of cutting down on consumption in the first place is a kind of a different thing we should we could talk about but anyway that's that's the idea there 
there's actually a de-influencing trend happening on TikTok right now. Which? Of people who are saying, no, you don't need to buy that. You don't need to buy this. You don't need this. So they could go hand in hand. They could go hand in hand. Metaverse, de-influencing. They could go in hand. And in fact, I just, um, one of the conversations I had recently was with Trove, which is the back, I mean, this is not a, a metaverse application, but it's the back end system that many um, brands are using to take back items that 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 people, you know, maybe you maybe you rented it, you maybe you had an REI tent that now you've outgrown. Maybe you had a single and now you need a double or a family and you could send the, the tent back and get, you know, upgrade essentially um, to a different item. So the the whole secondhand re-commerce um, um, concept as well could be hand in hand with that. So on the flip side, let's say the metaverse takes off, it becomes a huge success. And then it becomes as commonplace as things like laptops and cell phones. And I have my AirPods charging in front of me. And eventually they break or they become obsolete. What happens to all of this tech now that we didn't need before? Where does it go? How is it broken down? Is it broken down? There's two big problems with yeah with relying on this digital world because there are very real things associated with the digital world, right? There's two, in particular, um, the thing that you're asking about is electronic waste. What happens to these gadgets? What happens to those um, you know, hand controllers that you're using and the headsets after you um, are done with them? Uh, conceptually speaking, a lot of companies are trying to make sure that they're un, um, upgradable via software. So the, the idea is that you, it wouldn't obsolete as, as quickly as a cell phone does right now, right? So that you'd be able to keep upgrading it for a number of years, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yes, eventually it's important that these these gadgets be made in a way that you know number one the materials are are proper right is it, are these plastics what kind of plastics are they can they be um, reprocessed in some way in the future are they made from plastic you know are could are they made from recycled plastics which could be a, a very compelling um, you know I, application for that although I know we don't have enough recycled plastic for the what we needed today so that's a whole nother thing. Um, but yes, so we have to make sure that when these things are no longer wanted or discarded, that the they're collected in the right way, that they could be um, taken back by the manufacturers, um, and that there's a way to responsibly, I don't want to say recycle them, but take them to another point in their life, right? The second thing that would be that concerns me, and it, it also would apply to the TikTok world and to artificial intelligence, is the energy needed to drive the data centers behind all these things. Because processing all those videos, processing um, that all those renderings of um, of avatars, processing the analytics that are informing the you know what what the digital twins are saying, that all takes a lot of energy and. We need more work on data center um, technology in order to make sure that we don't, as we keep adding, you know, use more and more electricity, um, or if, if we are using more electricity, that it's that's clean, that it's sourced from wind, and that it's actually sourced from wind, not just some credits that you're buying um, to offset. So I think that would be the the downside. So what you're saying is, like everything else. 
this is always a part of a bigger conversation, talking about grid reliability, renewable energy sourcing, making sure that there's no greenwashing. Yeah, I think pretty that, much. Yeah, pretty much. It comes down to the fact that there's no black and white decisions that you can make with anything that pertains to sustainability, that there's going to be a trade-off in some way that um, unless we're completely living in a biological or biomimetic um, world that, um, you know, we're we're going to have to look very closely at the trade-offs and decide what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. We haven't even talked about the ethical implications of of either of these platforms. You know, are the right people being reached? Are we excluding individuals that have been, you know, historically excluded from digital technology. I mean, we saw that during the pandemic. So many um, communities that didn't have the wherewithal or that had, you know, five or six people at home using one computer, you know, they, they we, we have to make sure that we don't leave these communities behind. So that's a very real, in my opinion, um, thing that we have to watch for as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's part of why I am so drawn to TikTok because until recently, and they've been kind of switching up the algorithms as of late, but it gave people who didn't necessarily have access, you know, maybe people within the disabled community or people who weren't getting access to have their material published online, it gave them an outlet to speak directly to who they wanted to speak to and have people who wouldn't necessarily have heard their voices before hear it now. I agree there are a lot of ethical concerns, especially when you get to the fact that college campuses and states are starting to ban TikTok because of its connections to China. And that's a conversation that needs to be had as well. But I think like with the metaverse, the potential to open up accessibility is really big. And it's something that is inherently tied to sustainability and solving the climate crisis. The arrival of COVID-19 was a wake-up call for many entrepreneurs developing business models for reusable packaging. One of the ventures that persevered and thrived is Brooklyn, New York-based Redish, which provides reusable containers for institutional food service operations on media production sets, in private schools, and even for Fortune 500 companies. Joining me to chat about lessons learned over the past three years and to dish about what's next is Caroline Vanderlip, founder and CEO of Redish. Caroline, hello. Welcome. Good morning. Hello, Heather. Okay, give us the elevator pitch for Redish. What problem are you trying to solve and why is this such a big deal? So Redish comes from a place of you can't manage waste. You have to reduce it. And the only way to reduce it is to move to reuse. But how do you move to reuse without the backend infrastructure to wash not five dishes, but 50,000 dishes? And so that's the problem and the challenge uh, that Redish decided in the middle of COVID to undertake. Uh, And, you know, that's um, that's our elevator pitch, Heather. We have built the um, back end washing facility to handle to enable reuse at scale. And um, just as a slight uh, variation there, we do call ourselves Redish because 
um, disposables, single-use disposables that are used in um, institutional food service um, contributes, I don't know, 10 billion pounds of waste a year. And um, it is absolutely a market that is ripe for uh, reusables. That being said, um, the backend infrastructure that is the hallmark of Redish actually can wash almost anything that can fit, you know, within the width and height of a customized flight machine. And so uh, Redish is both about a reusable dishware program, but also about um, enabling third parties to do reuse as well. Our mission is reuse. When I think about like a an average corporate cafeteria, I'm not even sure if I remember like what I would be using. I thought I would think you would be using trays and like dishes and so forth. Like, is it mostly disposables? It's mostly compostables. Mostly um, compostables. As- okay. Mm-hmm. Because for many of these companies and schools, uh, you know, when compostables arrived on the scene a, a bunch of years ago, um, it was considered to be so much better for the environment than single-use plastic, which was mostly what people were using in some one form or another. Um, I think, you know, people have certainly discovered that that might not be the right answer. Um, there's a reason that reuse is at the top of the EPA pyramid, um, that the carbon emissions and water usage to manufacture that compostable um, is no better than single-use plastic, and that it actually unfortunately goes to landfill more often than not, um, you know, needing industrial compostable facilities and other things that unfortunately we just don't have. So uh, most of the uh, companies and schools that we work with today are replacing compostables with a reuse system. So what's your value proposition for those schools and corporations? Like they're going from one place to another what is it that they're looking at? Um, again, I, I'm curious, by the way, what your what your containers are made out of. Um, but talk talk me through the ROI. Um, so the value proposition is that uh, we're going to seamlessly transition them from um, single use disposables that are not good for the environment into a reusable program where they can see uh, tangible ESG benefits. Uh, and that we can do it, um, again, depending upon what they're using today, we can usually do it for a price that's comparable or only pennies more than what they're using today. Mm-hmm. And how do they account for this as part of their emissions reduction strategy? Like, is, do you give them that data? Yes, we do. It's it's uh, front and center of our entire program. So uh, we track every container that gets delivered and every container that gets collected. And then we, um, through a series of LCAs that have been done over the last couple of years of our program, we are able to give them the waste diverted, the carbon emissions reduced and the water reduced for any period of time that they've been in operation. So can you just describe some of these containers? Like what, what are we talking about? We are talking about plastic number five. We're talking about polypropylene which is um, the, you know, the the plastic that is safest from a food service perspective and most importantly is durable. Uh, So, you know, these containers have been certified up to a thousand washes. I suspect they could probably be used even more than that. Um, We're nowhere near, you know, even hundreds of 
uses rather than thousands, but uh, we know that they stand up. And if you think about the constant use that they're getting, the the back and forth, um, et cetera, you know, we needed something that we needed a material that could um, could be used many, many times without showing its wear. So if you look at stainless steel, for instance, you know, it gets scratched so easily and very hard to wash because it gets watermarked. If you look at um, uh, what's another, you know, aluminum, well, we don't look at aluminum because it's so bad for the environment, but, uh, you know, uh, for now, at least polypropylene seems to be um, the material that works best for reuse. That being said, we are constantly talking with um, people developing new materials. And if it can withstand the 180 degree temperatures that we wash it in and the kind of logistics, the transport back and forth, uh, we'll be the first in line to look at them. So I'm also curious about like the actual format. So are we talking plates and, and, oh, sure. and drinkware um, or are we talking like how they get delivered? I'm just, I'm curious, like what is, what, um, are, what are you stocking a kitchen with or, or an operation with? Yeah, so we offer eight different SKUs, everything from a 10-inch plate to a hot cold cup to various sizes of clamshell containers. So when we sign a Fortune 500 corporation, they take a look at what their needs are, and we give them the inventory that they need based on what they're serving. So you'll find normally um, our six by nine clamshell at the salad bar where you know employees can actually fill it on their own. Um, you'll find our 16 ounce soup clamshell, obviously at the soup bar. Uh, but you know if you're getting a sandwich and you're planning to eat in the cafeteria, it may be served on a plate. Mm -hmm. The clamshells, so that so are people staying in the in the operation with them or could they be taking them back to their desk? Both, both. So the clamshells um, acknowledge the fact that most people, do take it back to a meeting room, a conference room, um, their desk, et cetera. Uh, but there's still 20 to 25% on average of the population that's eating in the corporate cafeteria. Um, sometimes they choose a clamshell. I think they're just accustomed to takeout containers. Uh, but we've just introduced a plate because um, there's no reason necessarily to use a clamshell if you would prefer to eat you know, on site. What do you see the biggest as the biggest blocker to this sort of method of of handling the, the food? Well, I don't think there's any difference in handling the food um, in the same way that you would have filled a compostable container. You fill a reuse container. Um, I think um, most food operations uh, don't appreciate that. Uh, this is seamless. I mean, this is, there's really not a whole, there's not a lot of change uh, that they need to implement to put reusables, you know, in, in stock. Um, but, you know, our, our adage is, um, you know, kiss, keep it simple, stupid, you know, like keep it, keep the program simple and make sure that you educate your users on what you're doing, why you're doing it, um, make sure you have a lot of bins with the right signage on it so that they understand this doesn't go into a recycle bin. It doesn't go into the, the waste bin of any sort. It goes into a redish reuse 
been. And then from a food operation perspective, it's no different than what they do today. When bins get full, they tie up the bag, they put it in the back, and instead of it being hauled away um, by the waste management companies, it's hauled away by us. And the difference, of course, is we are scanning it, washing it, sanitizing it, and putting it back into um, inventory for the next day. So when you pick something up, is are you picking up daily and then returning or are you returning as you pick up? <laughs> Does that work? Um, a little bit of both. It depends on the size of the client. Uh, but in general, uh, we are picking up daily and delivering two to three times a week. So our um, the software that we built as part of the Redish program actually forecasts inventory needs. So it takes all the data from the first couple of weeks of a client's participation in the Redish program. What SKU are they using? What day did we collect that SKU? When, when did we deliver? Kind of all of the data of um, reuse. And it actually then forecasts what they'll need on delivery days. And so, you know, our goal is to maximize the inventory, to make sure that um, a lot of inventory is not sitting underutilized, taking up space at our clients, which is a, in particularly in New York, a very big issue, um, but that they always have enough inventory that, you know, uh, if, uh, if all of a sudden a meeting is called with 50 people, they're not scrambling to have packaging that they need. Yeah. You alluded to this a little bit a moment ago, but we, we both know that the biggest challenge, I think, I think actually the biggest challenge to reuse models is collection, getting the thing back in the first place. So how, like, how are you really leaning into that? How are you really helping with the collection? So fundamentally, we think it's about education and positive reinforcement and signage, signage and signage. So we have a whole education and training program that we introduce when we launch a new client. Um, it um, so first and foremost, we we walk the space with the client beforehand. We identify the traffic patterns of, you know, to your question earlier, are people eating in the cafeteria? If they're not, where are they taking the food to? Let's make sure that where they're taking it to also has a bin. And it's obvious because you don't, very hard to change behavior. We all know that. And so you want to make the um, return of those containers as easily those dishes as easy as possible. So putting bins in the right place, constantly reevaluating are the bins in the right place. Um, a great example is we um, we have a, a terrific Fortune 500 client who realized a couple of months in that they had a lot of contractors in the building. And the contractors who were also eating in the cafeteria were taking the food down to a room in the basement where they were finishing their meal, but there was no bin in the basement. So, you know, when the client recognized that and they were able to put a bin there, amazing what the return rate looked like. So it's it's those kinds of fundamentals. Um, we also find that it's really important to remind the users why, why they're doing this. Why is the company doing it? Why have they introduced reusables? Which means sharing the impact metrics with them. Uh, and, you know, we also do a bunch of gamification um, ideas. And the one that I'll just uh, mention here is, for instance, there's a unique QR code on the back of every one of our dishes. 
if you scan that QR code, you'll actually see how many times that particular dish has been used and washed. And it will share with you what that contribution has been. So it's a reminder to the user that what they're doing is has an impact and is important and actually has a correlation to climate change. Because I think everybody wants to do something to impact, but nobody knows what that is, right? It's just, it's such a huge conversation and how you as an individual fit into that is, is, is a complicated question. And so we try to reinforce the fact that by returning this container, this dish, this plate, this cup, you're actually having an impact on carbon emissions, on water, ultimately to the climate. Got it. A couple more questions for you. You're in New York right now. How do you see your company's model scaling? And I'm talking so, from a regional perspective, like, you know, like other places, you know. Yeah, no. So um, currently um, our facility in New York handles the New York DMA, which essentially means we go um, up to Westchester, um, even to the lower parts of Connecticut, down to mid New Jersey. Um, our plan is to um, replicate our facility and our service in other markets. We will be announcing a second market in the next month. Um, and then our plan is to, um, over the next couple of years, be in over a dozen markets. So we've blueprinted um, the processes, the facility, um, the custom machinery. We, we know how to kind of outfit a facility for scale and have blueprinted that for an introduction into other DMAs around the country. Okay, I have to ask you, what's a DMA? I'm sorry. You know, it's a it's an old media term from my media days, but it actually represents not just the center city, but all of the surrounding areas that feed into that city. And I can't remember what it stands for. So <laughs> okay, I'll have to look that up. <laughs> so um, what role, role do you see standards playing, right? It sounds like you have a very unique container specific to you as a QR code, but how important are standards going to be in this space? Well, I think that um, standards are important and we've worked with a lot of the standards um, groups that have formed. Um, and I think we've developed a lot of those standards. I mean, I think we can actually show um, what quality control looks like and what one has to do to ensure um, uh, cleanliness uh, and to ensure return, et cetera. So I think just as the standards are being built, we are contributing to them and we're actually, you know, uh, implementing a lot of them. So you can see what works, what doesn't work, et cetera. You know, the last two and a half years, Heather's been a lot of trial and error. It's not as if there were um, industrial washing facilities already in existence that we could take a look at and say, we want to do that, but a little bit differently. You know, we've been developing this um, without that comparative capability. And I think um, a lot of the uh, the knowledge that we have now as a consequence of that are being fed into the standards. Okay. One final question. What's next for Redish? What, what will I be asking you about next year? Um, hopefully you're asking us about all of the other reusable players who are using our backend infrastructure. Hopefully you'll be asking us about the municipalities 
that have decided to move to reuse but need that infrastructure to um, support their efforts that Redish is a part of. Um, we're very excited about um, reuse in general. If you haven't, uh, if you can't tell that by my voice, um, and we believe that the conversation around circular and around reuse is very of the moment. Uh, it is finally here, and there are so many different um, areas where it can be applied, and we and we hope fundamentally that we built something that can address all that. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You just heard from Caroline Vanderlip, founder and CEO of Redish. Well, that's a wrap for the week. Thanks to Leah Garden for lending her voice to this episode. I'll be back next week with another edition of Greenbiz 350, co-hosted by senior editor Jesse Klein. Meanwhile, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters at www.greenbiz.com forward slash newsletters hyphen subscribe. In particular, Leah and I are especially fond of Climate Tech Rundown, which as she mentioned earlier, offers you two editions each week of our groundbreaking climate tech coverage. Signing off for now, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services, where a commitment to sustainability means delivering innovative solutions every day. Learn how AWS is accelerating change at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability.